Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Human instinct. You sign a deal like that that many of us will never have the opportunity to, to sign. What is the initial emotion? What's the initial feeling? Um, excitement. Um, you know, I've said it multiple times, and, you know, I think these guys knew it, that I want to be here long term. And, you know, we, uh, we got that done and just excited about this team and where we think we're going. Um, you know, I, I look at this lineup and what was done this offseason um, – you know, I think that we're very talented, and if everybody goes out there and does what they can, this is going to be a special year. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, March the 31st, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Big show here, opening weekend show. Uh, you'll hear uh, some updates live from Washington, D.C. as our buddy Rich Catino, 9870 ESPN, and 
MetsmerizedOnline.com contributor. We'll check in about his observations, spending some time with the team down in Washington, D.C. for the weekend. You'll also hear from former Met and author of a new book, After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets. I had a chance to catch up with Art Shamsky earlier this weekend. And you'll hear that later on in the program. But first, we'll start out, and I think it was like about 12 seconds after I posted the podcast on Monday, and I really tried to keep pushing the podcast off about the Jacob deGrom extension. And um, you know, then the news comes out that he signed an extension. And the reaction there, I think, goes back to what I said all along, is that number one, you can't get too emotional through updates in the media. Negotiations require back and forth. It's not a situation like with players like Noah Syndergaard, say, or the media. Well, you just give him what he wants, Jacob DeGrom, because you reward him for a great season. There's a lot of layers to that. And I'll tell you what. Mets got themselves a good deal. They got a deal where almost a third of it is the, maybe a little bit more than that is deferred without interest. DeGrom gets a nice payday later on when he's not playing and he's down in Florida without state taxes, assuming that down the road there won't be state taxes in Florida. I mean, DeGrom gets a pretty nice payday down the road. Uh, I think with the average annual value at about $28 million-ish dollars, that's a little bit below what I expected DeGrom to sign for, but it's very fair. And if you read Tim Britton's piece at The Athletic, I know that's a pay site, uh, some of the quotes from DeGrom from last weekend that we led last show off with uh, the lack of optimism really stemmed from miscommunication about whether the meetings that they were going to have were either uh, Saturday or Sunday. And that's really all that is. And what I really took away from Brody Van Wagen and then Jeff Wilpon, and I think that's where he's a little bit different than his father, Fred, who many describe as fiscally conservative, that he knew what he wanted and he got them in a room and they were basically like, hey, we're not going to leave until this is done. And if you want a player and that player is your target and you feel strongly about signing a player, short of the numbers or the years or something really going out of whack, there's got to be a way to find a middle ground. And I was a little skeptical that DeGrom wanted to be here. Not that he didn't want to be here, but I was like, well, is this like Chris Sale, who basically said he wanted to be with the Red Sox and sign an ex- extension, and Verlander, who basically wanted to be in Houston? Is he Does he want to be here for the right deal or a deal that makes him at a certain level? Or does he really want to compromise and find the middle ground? And also, does CAA feel like they need to really win the deal because of Van Wagenen's relationship uh, obviously working there and then going to the other side? And it looks like... None of that really mattered. DeGrom really wanted to be here. Van Wagenen was able to really, you know, sell the vision to ownership about DeGrom being the hub here and the highest paid player in in some ways because of the total dollars. Uh, Nearly the highest paid player in Mets history and, and this big contract that's right up there with what they gave Cespedes. And if Cespedes was a statement a couple of years ago, this is even a bigger statement because... What it really says is that now the Mets are really all in to win now. And what comes next is with all these young players that you have and you saw performing throughout the weekend, and what really was a positive weekend, even though the Mets lost today and and won two out of three, and not everything was perfect, a positive weekend, though. Guys like Nimmo and Conforto and down the road Alonzo and Syndergaard and Wheeler 
maybe you throw Lugo into that, and, and eventually Edwin Diaz, is that if these young players, and they are young, the Mets have some youth on this roster. I mean, the na- guys I named to you are, uh, you know, for the most part, all of them are going to be south of 30, not not too much, uh, you know, m- maybe 30. I'm looking right now, uh, you know, Lugo's 29, and, uh, you know, Wheeler, I think, is around that. But uh, the Mets are willing to invest in these guys at the right price, at a fair price. And I don't think it's a an undermarket situation with DeGrom. I think it was a fair deal when you put everything in in context and perspective. And now it goes to Syndergaard. Now it goes to Wheeler. Now it goes to Mats. DeGrom has gone out there and exceeded expectations and has lived up to his, more than lived up to his ceiling and has gotten paid. And it wasn't about a moniker. It wasn't like Matt Harvey about being, you know, on the magazine. It was just going out and winning and performing. And I think that's where you need to see more from Syndergaard. You need to see if Wheeler's second half, you know, which pitcher he is. I'm suspecting that he's going to fall somewhere in between the first and second half of Wheeler, which is still pretty good. Uh, not a banner outing for him today, but, uh, you know, he, he battled through it and kept the Mets in the ball game. I think he was a little unlucky at times uh, with some of the pitch uh, calling by the home plate umpire and, and you know, just, just some things that happened. I thought he was a little unlucky. And then there's Mets tomorrow in Miami. So at this point, the reason why I didn't want the Mets to rebuild last year is because I really believe these four guys can be such a bedrock and and be such the fabric of this team that if you build a competent offense, and right now not a, not everything went well for the Mets offensively this weekend, but you had a competent offense, an offense that kept coming after you, different contributors, you saw they have depth off the bench, there was an energy level that's hard to describe, and I know we saw it last year early in the season with the 11-1 start, but even now these young players, they seem to really be hungry, a, a, an opportunity to prove themselves. And I know a lot of the success this weekend tied into Pete Alonso, and he's certainly not going to hit five or 600 all year, but that kind of energy, that kind of enthusiasm, what you see out of a J.D. Davis, an Alonso, uh, the professionalism of a Cano starting a rally today, um, the improvements of Rosario, uh, even a Juan Lagares coming off the bench and 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 contributing, uh, you know these are the kind of things, the energy that starts to to manifest itself and almost like a snowball starts to become the fabric of the team. I mean Jeff McNeil continues to be a hit machine out there and a, and a, and a grinder and a pro, but the bedrock of all of this will be that starting rotation because. Look, it's not the perfect offense. It's it's not like you have boppers in every position. Uh, and if you look, you see what the Phillies have done this weekend down in Philadelphia against Atlanta. You know, maybe they're a little bit more talented offensively. I'll tell you what, the Nationals this weekend showed without Harper that the speed of a Turner and the uh, Eaton, who I like as a player, I think he's a, is a, is a pesky little player, and uh, Robles, those three guys in a row, I mean, those guys could really be a problem for you in the 9-1-2 and two hole. Uh, Soto, although he he jumped out of his shoes a couple of times, that's more youthful exuberance. Uh, there's still some good plate discipline there. And I've said all along, you know, I like Bryce Harper. I just don't like Bryce Harper on a 13- or 15-year deal. I think the Nats may be getting away from Harper and some of what are unfulfilled team expectations, or maybe in some cases unfulfilled expectations by Harper, is a good thing for them. So they proved to be pesky. I mean, they they kept coming to the Mets, even down seven runs on Saturday. 
so what, not everything went perfect. Mets bullpen uh, was good on opening day, not so great the rest of the uh, the two games. But you did not feel like when a guy came in that it was like, oh, you rolled your eyes and said, ah, oh, here's kerosene on the fire. Uh, there's a lot of options for Mickey Calloway, even with you know Familia pulling him in the eighth inning. What that showed me is that he's not married to a name in an inning that he's willing to make adjustments. Now, I might have went to Avion against the lefty Adams, and I know that's tricky because you have to get Avion up, and then maybe he counters with a righty, and that was Callaway's concern. And Lugo, certainly after his opening day performance, was was the was a, not a bad choice, um, but he seemed off uh, his entire outing. Maybe maybe that was due to some of the raw weather that's going on in D.C. But in general, a weekend where you started out, or actually a week, you started out with Degrom getting the extension. And now you go into taking two out of three for the Nats. Could have easily swept. Good energy. Pete Alonso continues to uh, impress. Jeff McNeil impresses. Cano wins you a game and makes an early statement. Um, you saw some positive things out of out of almost everybody. Not everything, you know, Conforto and Nimmo not hitting. Um, you know, like I said, the bullpen situation, certainly not perfect. Uh, you know, defense was a little shoddy at times. But in general, you have to feel good about the Mets. And if you had said back in October when Brody Van Wagenen took over that this would be his first regular season week, forget the offseason, what he accomplished and the signings and the trades and all this, but his first regular season week would yield a DeGrom extension, something that was talked about all summer last year, more so in the context of trading him and taking two out of three on the road against the Nats in the manner that they did and with what they showed, an offense that keeps coming and some real energy from from a bunch of uh, a combination of veterans, young players. You could not have asked for more back in October when Brody Van Wagenen was hired. So good start. Uh, don't want to belabor the point here. A lot of baseball ahead, whether the Mets won two out of three swept or got swept. It wasn't going to change anything. I think this is going to be a tough division. I think the Nats would look like they're going to be a tough team. Uh, I think the Phillies, uh, you know, I haven't watched the Phillies, but just watching from afar and seeing some highlights, they look like they have uh, uh, an offense that uh, is deep. Uh, I don't like the Braves. I've said that. I didn't like the Braves last year. I think the Braves are the probably uh, out of the, the teams, the Nats, the Mets, and the Phils are probably fourth. Uh, and, uh, you know, then the Marlins come up. But, you know, regardless, the Braves still have a lot of talent, and they did win the East last year. So uh, you have to realize that they're not going to be a pushover. There's going to be a lot of tough games in this division. And, um, you know, I do think the Mets, and there were some rumors Earlier today, maybe interested in, in, in looking at expanding the bullpen. I know Craig Kimbrell's name came up. Again, I don't like Kimbrell. I, I think his, if you look, his, his stats were inflated towards the end of last year into the postseason. Dallas Keuchel's name came up as an option. And it would be interesting, would Vargas as a long man as an option? That was something that today might have become a problem because uh, of the matchups earlier in the game that if you if you went to Familia and then you went to Diaz for an inning each, uh, where would you go after that? And it was probably going to be Vargas, and that screws up your rotation. So maybe Tim Peterson, and I know they pinch hit for him coming in, and, and maybe he would have been the long man. But you do kind of not have, when Lugo's not around, of course, and Gazelman was used, and you're not going to have Lugo. There's going to be games, especially if you're using Lugo in the seventh inning in tight games. Uh, you're not going to have him in long games, so you might need an arm in that pen that could go long, and then maybe that also ties into: Do you need the extra? Do you need the eighth bullpen arm in there? The eighth, you know, arm out of there, 
where uh, uh, you know you can basically go 13 pitchers, 12 offense, which we talked all spring. Not necessary because of Gazelman, because of Lugo. So a little early to get too deep into that, but uh, some questions there. And I, that's why I think if you get Keuchel, he's not going to be ready for about a month. It allows you to evaluate Vargas, see what you got in Vargas. Uh, of course, who knows what he's looking for? It sounds like the Mets are just doing some cursory investigation. And, uh, you know, I'm not interested in Keiko on a multi-year deal, but I am interested in signing either one of those guys, even though I'm not a big Kimbrell guy, if it's just for the rest of the season. There, to me, is a very low risk signing them for the rest of the season. And I, I do feel that as you get into the April month, these guys got to be saying to their agents, look, I know this didn't work out. I know we have to stay... Uh, lockstep with the union and what they feel is maybe some salary uh, suppression. But clearly the industry has concerns about both those players, rightfully so. Keuchel in some cases gives you, depending on the year, Vargas-type performance, but his ceiling is much higher uh, because he's shown and proved it uh, in a couple of seasons. But the consistency in the, in the resume isn't there. Uh, you know, maybe you sign that one year what they usually call a pillow contract, and that's it. You know, you, you, you move on from there. So... Uh, we'll see. Uh, I'm not opposed to either one of those on a one-year deal. I would not be interested in either one of those on a multi-year deal. That I don't think would be a good investment for the Mets. And uh, I don't think they're at a point where they have to go that route to get either player. If those, either of those players come to uh, a reasonable number and they want to play in New York and they want to be part of something uh, fun and, and maybe that will turn into something special, they have that opportunity right here. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, Rich Catino live from Washington, D.C. Then later on after Rich, Art Shamsky, former Met, author of the book After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets, will be joining us. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. What a series by our guys to come back and make that a tie game off of Doolittle. And the way they did it, the way they battled back was tremendous. Great series win. The fans need to be proud. They got something special to come watch. That's for sure. That was, that was awesome. I couldn't be more proud of, of what they did today. You know, the guys did a nice job coming back. Uh, you know, we just couldn't finish it out today, but um, you know, I like what we see so far. And you know, the guys are battling, and um, it's, it's going to be a fun year. Coming back and showing those guys, hey, we're never going to lay down. It doesn't matter, you know, who you got pitching the eighth, ninth. You're going to have to bring your closer in for five outs, and you're still not going to get it done. That's pretty that's pretty special. That was a that was a great series for us. We're back joining us live from Washington DC having just uh completed covering the Mets weekend with the Nats. Rich Catino, uh, 9870 ESPN, also a contributor over at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Rich, pleasure to have you on uh Baseball is back, real baseball, baseball that counts, and you were in Washington, D.C. for that, and a, and a great week. Starts with a Jacob deGrom extension, ends at the Mets winning two out of three, and almost sweeping the Nationals. Uh, if if you had scripted Brody Van Wagenen's first regular season week at the beginning of the winter, I don't know if you could have scripted it any better than this. No, you really couldn't. I, I think that um, one of the things is all the things that he went out and got kind of showed – their faces in this weekend, whether it's Diaz, whether it was Cano, whether it was Familia in a setup role, whether it was Pete Alonso doing what he's doing, mashing baseballs, the pitching, and doing it in the divisional series and on the road, 
And when you look at the Mets' history in the last four years, the last three seasons, even the year they went, made the playoffs in 2016, they really did not fare well in the division, particularly early in the season. And they did well in 2015, even though they weren't hitting. They took care of a lot of divisional games early in the season, and I think that contributed to the 91 year of 2015. So winning two out of three in D.C. is a great start towards it in a month in which they're going to have a ton of divisional games. And um, and it was a great start for Brody Van Wagenen, no question. And you know, it, the week starts off with the Degrom extension, and I was on the air and and the, the night before, and I think the <laughs> it's like twelve minutes after uh, the 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 podcast goes up, he signs. But you know, you and I talked about this, and we said all along, and I was saying this is that there was all this doom and gloom uh, out there, the media about a deadline. Uh, there was talk, you know, late into the process that Degrom was was getting pessimistic, um, and it turned out that maybe it was just the emotions of the back and forth that were at play there. Um, at the end of the day, Degrom got a very fair deal. I think the Mets got a really good deal. I mean, they got him for less than thirty million annual average value. He gets an opt out, and now he's the gold standard of that rotation. And as you saw throughout this weekend, Wheeler, Syndergaard, Matt. Now they have to live up to what their max will be. And I think over the next 12 months, you're going to have to make some decisions of who's going to be part of this. And that competition can be healthy and good and can lead to some really good baseball. It could be actually a way to, to get the most out of these guys. No question. Um, and I think both Syndergaard and Wheeler had performances this weekend that were not typical performances, at least for Wheeler, what we saw last year, especially in the second half. I think today Wheeler was, you know, he was a little too fastball happy, and he didn't really concentrate on his other pitches, the pitches that really have that made his second half of the year great last year. So I think that's something he's going to have to keep an eye on. And for Syndergaard, I think, you know, it was simple. He just was, he was not using the, the high part of the strike zone or the inside of the plate, and those are things that, that he has to do going forward. Um, but yesterday they really – came back with a lot of resilience both offensively in the bullpen and today we almost saw it again uh looks like the eighth inning mike is going to be a special inning for the mets this year because it seems like they're going crazy in the eighth inning but from a nationals perspective um i'm wondering if this weekend two things one is are they worried about their bullpen and i was worried about their bullpen going into the year it isn't just the setup guys sean doolittle spit it up today so and again it's one game you don't want to panic but that's the guy they're relying on as much as the Mets are relying on Diaz to close games. And I think the Nationals' bullpen is a question mark. I thought it was going into the season, and that question just intensified in my mind this weekend, whereas I thought the Mets' bullpen was a strength. And that just got supplanted this weekend by what I saw, particularly from Diaz. And I think that, you know, that's going to be a key in this division. And then when we get, you got to look at the Phillies, they're giving David Robertson the ball in closing situations. And when I look at the bullpens across this division, the Mets clearly have the guy in the ninth inning, the best guy having the ball in Edmund Diaz. And that's why I picked them to win the division, because I feel that in today's baseball, that is such an important part of a, a winning team. We talked about last year around this time, uh, the energy around the team was good. Mickey Calloway was the, was new to the, the whole thing. They started out 11-1. and There was a good energy. And, and we know what happened after the first 12 games. But 
there is a different vibe, at least it seems, with this crew. Uh, am I reading too much into that? Uh, you were down in Port St. Lucie. We talked a little bit about how you know Brody may have instituted you know maybe that salesmanship, that that belief that sometimes people need. Uh, but there's talent here combined with that belief. Uh, I just sense the different energy. These guys are having fun. Uh, I know it's it's three games, but uh, it just had a different feel just watching these games. It does, and I think the biggest difference between this year and last year is the core of the team last year was pretty much veteran players. It was Cespedes, it was Jay Bruce, it was Todd Frazier. Now, we haven't even seen all the players here. Jed Lowry we haven't seen yet. Todd Frazier's still hurt. But the young players are really bringing a lot of energy and enthusiasm. Pete Alonzo is a very emotional kid. And kid, he's in his mid-20s. I shouldn't really call him a kid. But he has a lot of energy. I think Jeff McNeil has a lot of energy. I think that there's a combination of youth and enthusiasm from the veterans. And last year was mainly veteran enthusiasm which sometimes can be not there that you like it, but when you have young players there combining with the veterans, I think there's a, there's a good sense of it. And there's so much uh, going on in my clubhouse. Noah Syndergaard is starting to get nicknames for everyone. Teams that Noah likes animals, and he's calling Alonzo a polar bear. He called Jeff McGill a squirrel. Like, he's really, they're really starting to kind of get on each other a little bit, and that's always a good sign, too. And I think that the young players, though, are bringing the enthusiasm level up higher than it was at this point last season because other than the Med Rosario, there weren't really any young players in that mix at that point in the season. Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN, joining us here live from Washington, D.C. with some reaction uh, kicking off the baseball season. Uh, Rich, the bullpen, we saw how Mickey's using the bullpen. I, I mean – I don't think it's going to automatically, other than the ninth inning, be Familia in the eighth. You saw him go to Lugo yesterday. Uh, all those guys, I think they were getting squeezed a little bit, but it looked like the, maybe because of the weather, maybe it was a bunch of different things. Uh, the control wasn't there for a lot of these guys this weekend. But in general, it looks like it's going to be Lugo in the seventh, uh, uh, Familia in the eighth, uh, Diaz in the ninth when they're ahead, and then it looks like it'll be Gazelman, Wilson, Guys like that, when it's either you know tied or or when they're behind, maybe a little Tim Peterson, Avion will be the the lefty guy that'll go in and get lefties out. Uh, is that how you see the bullpen shaping up right now? It really is, but I think there could be mixtures with that. I think that the thing about Avalon is that Avalon is a left-handed specialist, is very true, but he also goes good at getting right-handed hitters out. So I, I could see Avalon in certain games pitching in the eighth inning. If Familia has pitched two straight nights, I can see him mixing and matching a lot of things in there. There's a lot of depth in that bullpen. This Met team has depth, and we saw it this weekend because the bullpen depth got shown and also the bench depth on a day like today where he doesn't start McNeil and he doesn't start Ligaris. They both come off the bench, and they get big hits. So when you have a deep bench, it gives the manager a lot more ability to, you know, have options that he can go to. And, you know, and that's always good for a manager to have options both on the bench and the bullpen. And we saw it today. We saw in that eighth inning. Lagares comes off the bench, ice cold against Sean Doolittle, gets a big hit to tie the game. They also got big hits on a lot of the guys that were double switching and out of the game. So I look at it as a real benefit to the deepness of the Met team. And I think we've seen in the National League in the last past few years, I, they're, a lot of, they're good teams in the National League, but I would say the Dodgers 
were probably the deepest team last year in the National League from top to bottom and the year before. And I'm not surprised that that's the team that went to the World Series. Deep teams win, and the depth of this Met team is something that is a real advantage for them going into this National League East play in 2019. And that's where I'll wrap up the depth component. There's been some reports. Uh, Ken Rosenthal reported that you know maybe there's some interest from the Mets on Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel, and you know there's some other reports that have come out after the ball game that indicated that the Mets are checking in, but it's really not hot and heavy on either one of those guys. Look, I'm not a big Kimbrell fan, but on a one-year deal coming into a bullpen where you're not relying on him to close games and you have other options. You're not going to say no to that. I think they're one arm short in there. Uh, Keuchel, I think a lot depends on, you know, what do you think about Jason Vargas? Because Keuchel's been up and down over the last couple of years. He's had Vargas-esque type of seasons in the last couple of years. Um, so you wonder, are you really getting an upgrade? But, you know, there isn't much proven depth beyond the five guys in the rotation. Uh, you had said that you were poking around on that. Any thoughts on the uh, on the rumors about the Mets maybe – enhancing this roster, even though it's April 1st tomorrow. Well, it's funny. I had a long conversation with Omar Minaya yesterday. We were talking about the team in general. He said to me, you know, Rich, we're still looking for starting pitching depth. It's something that we're looking at. And then I kind of poked around a little more, and I know the Mets have checked in on Keiko. Um, now, that could be more due diligence, Mike, than anything else in terms of seeing if the price has come down, seeing if the years have come down, and then maybe – bring him in to give some flexibility to your decision-making about Wheeler at the end of the season and also Noah Syndergaard going forward. Um, it's an interesting scenario. Um, I think that they clearly have checked in. And Keiko may be trying to explore, like, how am I going to get on a big league roster at this point? Tomorrow's April 1st. I haven't even had time to get ready for the season with the team I'm going to be with. So I think there's a lot there. I think for either guy, Kimball or Keuchel, the Brewers would be an absolute perfect fit for either of those guys and could put them over the top in their division. Now, if you put Keuchel in the Met rotation and either move Vargas into the bullpen or maybe then talks about bringing in another maybe right-handed bat for one of the other pitchers in your rotation, I think there's a lot of flexibility there and a lot of options. But if you bring Keuchel into this rotation and put Vargas in the bullpen, <clears throat> to me, the Mets would clearly have the best starting rotation in all of baseball. And combine that with a bullpen that is solid and deep, and you may have a team that if they make a move like that tomorrow, that all these so-called experts might start anointing the Mets as their favorites in the National League. And I think that it's something they're exploring, but I think the price has to be right, the situation has to be right, and also – it has to also help them in that knowing he would go to a National League East team, which could improve the rotation of the Braves or the Phillies, you know, big time. So I think all that plays into it. I think there's still a lot to be done, but the Mets clearly did check in on it. I know that for a fact. And so I wouldn't count the Mets out of it, although I wouldn't establish them as a favorites for it either at the same time. You know, last thing with the Nats, a team that many think, are the best thing at NL East. Even though they lost Murphy and Harper, and Harper being the big bat they missed, this is still a pretty decent team. I like how they have the Robles, Eaton, uh, Turner with some speed. They could they'd have that component. 
I know they don't have that fearsome bop in the middle, but uh, Juan Soto is, is certainly – he's young, but he has a good eye at the plate. He's a little undisciplined at times. Again, this is a small sample size, but he could probably in some ways replace Harper, who I've thought has been overrated for a long time. Uh, they're going to be tough. They're not too different than the Harper Nats. Uh, that's my impression watching them through the weekend. Yeah, and like I said, the main problem I have with them is their bullpen. And I think one thing about bad bullpens, um, bullpens are very simple in baseball. They can take a weakness. A great bullpen can take a weakness somewhere else on the team and correct it. Let's say your team doesn't get a lot of tack-on runs. Your bullpen can solve that by being an effective bullpen. But the other thing that a bad bullpen can do is it could take a little pimple on your face and make it an eyesore. And I just have the feeling that, you know, when I look at the Nationals team, I say, you know, there's maybe not the home run power there was with Harper. I do think offensively they're a solid team. But I looked at this division and I evaluated it clearly to me. The two best teams in this division were the Mets and Braves. And I felt that from the beginning. And I feel that now. And I feel that the Mets and Braves will battle for this division. And I think the Nationals and Phillies will have to battle for wild card positioning if they get in. That's how I think good I think the Braves and Mets both are. And I think the Braves and Mets both have deeper teams. They both have better pitching. I think the Phillies and, and Nationals probably have better lineups than the Mets and Braves. But I think this is going to be a year, Mike, where I think we're going to return to baseball uh, the way it always should have been, that starting pitching and the bullpen is going to win in divisions and it will curb good hitting. And I think that's going to show its face in the NL East. I do agree with you the Nationals have a good team. But I do think the Mets and Braves rosters are better than the Nationals and Phillies right now, despite everything the Phillies added in the offseason. Rich, I know you got to go catch a train. Be well. Thanks a lot for checking in after the ball game. I'm sure you and I will do more throughout the season. Take care, my friend. You got it, Mike. Always a pleasure being on with you. You're the best, buddy. Thank you. That's uh, Rich Catino at Catino9 on Twitter, ESPN987. You can check him out. He's always on with Larry Hardesty. Rich also contributes over at MetsamorizedOnline.com. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsamorizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now that's Mets m-e-r-i-z-e-d online.com and get mesmerized today we're back and joining me member of the 1969 Mets and author of the book After the Miracle The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets Art Chamsky Art uh, Mike Silvey here pleasure to have you on uh, I know you've been doing tons of these interviews are, are you tired yet of talking about the 69 Mets or does it never get old after all this time uh, it never gets old Mike it's uh, it's a it's a team that lives on forever I was so happy to be part of it 
you know, I played 13 years, and for all intents and purposes, nobody ever talks about the other 12. It really is about 1969, and this year with the 50th anniversary and the book coming out, it was it's very special for me, and and um, I've done a couple things with some of the guys, and it's great to see them. And, and you know, we lost um, 10 guys from that team, including coaches and our great manager, Gil Hodges, and, and some really good friends that uh, passed away at, at a really young age. But there's a nucleus still there, and, and it's great to, to be able to get together and share those memories. And, and the book itself was really about a, a trip we took out to see Tom Seaver. And it's not your everyday kind of day-to-day kind of game look at every game that went on that season. It really is about relationships and, and camaraderie and actually age, aging. It's about uh, all of us getting older and, and losing friends. And so uh, we wanted to do something a little bit different than the, the normal books written about that. There's, so, there's been so many books written about the 69 Mets, and, and Eric Sherman, who co-wrote it with me, and I decided we wanted to do something different, and, and hopefully people enjoy it. I think it's a it's a book that people will get a little bit of inside information on that great team and, and hopefully um, understand that we all are friends and there's great camaraderie and, uh, and it's a very, very special time for all of us. You mentioned that everybody talks about 69, but not the other 12 years of your career. I was looking at, and I'm in my 40s, so guilty I didn't see you in 1969, but I've read a ton about it. You were uh, a, a modern-day offensive player. By today's standards, they, you would be valued very highly. You walked more than you struck out, something that doesn't happen anymore. High on base percentage power. Part of me wonders if you played at the new Yankee Stadium, would you have hit 40 home runs? Um, I know you had some injury issues that probably limited you, but uh, have you thought about that? Because you, you watch the game today, you see how they look at offensive players maybe a little bit differently than your time. You would be valued very highly, and you profile very well by today's offensive standards. Well, you know, the, the thing I try not to do is, is think about it too much because you'll get a little frustrated. You know, I've understood and learned about this a long time ago. Life's all about timing. Um, the reality of it is that the guys who played before us probably thought we were making too money, too much money and, and look at what's going on in baseball now. I, I kind of like to think that I would have been a pretty good player in any era. Uh, injuries did hurt my career, but the reality is I, I've got an opportunity to play in the 60s and early 70s against, I think, the greatest conglomerate of players in the history of the game. And the National League had, of course, the Mays, Aaron Clemente, Koufax, Drysdale, um, Marischal, Gibson, and on and on and on. And I got a chance to play. I came up with the Cincinnati Reds, and Frank Robinson was on that team, Veda Pinson, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench. We we all were friends, and, and, and I got a chance to play with those guys and against them later on. But but, uh, you know, I, I think about it sometimes. I would love to be playing now. The ballparks are all smaller now than when I played. Um, it's, it's, it's a different world. It's all about strikeouts and RBI. I mean, the home runs and RBIs, and nobody cares about strikeouts. And I, I, I was taught a different style of game. It was about to get on base, move the runner on, um, basically small ball in some respects. But but the game today is totally different, and I just don't think about it that much anymore. I feel like I was very lucky to be part of that championship team and, and really had a chance to play with and, and, and against some of the greatest players ever in the game. Art Shamsky's joining me, a great book. Uh, After the Miracle, had a chance to hear stories from Art, Bud Harrelson, Jerry Kuzman, Ron Swoboda, and uh, Tom Seaver, amongst others. A great different look at the uh, 1969 season, being that this is opening day weekend. Um, I don't know if it's the 69 opening day or maybe there's other memories. Do you have 
uh, an opening day memory. It seems like it's always for the fans and the players. It's a different day. You have your postseason drama later on. It's almost like before the postseason, it's that postseason feel. You don't get that all the time during the regular season. Do you have opening day memories or something that comes to mind uh, that you want to share on this weekend with your book out there in the public, but it also being the opening weekend of the baseball season? Well, it's always a time of optimism. And, and uh, you know, I came over to the Mets in 1968. That was Gil Hodges' first year. And, and uh, you know, and, and Gil was the, the kind of manager that kind of uh, basically gave us the optimism to go on and be better ball players. He, I remember in 1968 spring training, he told us that you guys will not be the same old Mets as, as everybody knows. And, of course, that was the uh, lovable losers uh, kind of tag that everybody remembers the Mets of those years. But And then in 69, he said, you know, you guys are better than everybody thinks. You're better than what you think. So learn to try to learn to, to win some close games and, 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 and be more competitive. And that's really what happened to us in 1969 on a on a personal issue, I, I think my my first year in 1965 in the big leagues, um, I got a chance to be at the Crosley Field in Cincinnati back then, and and just the aura of, of opening baseball. That's when Cincinnati was uh, basically the, the always the opening day game in baseball, and that's changed uh, in the last years. But but just to be out there in uniform and, and every kid's dream to be in the big leagues, I, I think I remember that more than anything. You talk about Miracle Mets and and you guys and Gill and and all those years of losing and and if you look at the numbers uh, of that of this team, sometimes I feel like Miracle Mets. I understand that that's a, a, a cute story. You guys were a good team. The numbers indicate that. If you go into just pure back end analytics, uh, great pitching. Yes, offensively, maybe you didn't have the powerhouse lineup that you see today, but different era offensively, like you talked about, guys who got on base, made contact. Um, do you ever feel like maybe when you guys were together for this project that maybe you're a little underrated in some ways because they're making it seem like you didn't almost it was a otherworldly force that that helped you there? Well, I think it's really because of where the team was in the early years. I mean, just an awful team lost 120 games the very first year in 1962. I think that stigma stayed with us, and 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 we were a good team. I mean, we just the National League back then was very difficult, so it was very competitive. But but what we didn't do back then, and in, in, in when that first year, my year, first year in Gills and Tommy Agee and, and Al Weiss, a couple other guys came at the same time. Is that we just did not know how to win close games. We had great young pitching, of course, with Tom Seaver and Kuzman and Gentry and McGraw and Ryan and McAndrew and. A lot of young pitchers and, and, and a mix of, of some older pitchers too, but um, we just didn't win. We win, didn't win close games. We we found ways to lose them, and I think that was the big difference in '69. Um, we basically had the same team in '69 as we did in '68, except all of a sudden, um, at some point, and I, I just don't know what it was—a game or a series or something—is we started believing in ourselves a lot more, and we started winning every close game, and that was the difference. Um, we, we just we just we won 100 games in 1969, and and the, a lot of those games were very very close because of the pitching and defense we had, and it was just a matter of us finding ways to win those games, and I think that's really what happened to us. And that you just kind of answered my question that I was going into after. Teams that start to win, they get that it factor, and you could see it, like you feel it, even through the fans in the stadium on television. You see they're they're accelerating, accelerating to another level, accelerating to another level. 
Uh, there's not that point. Now, I know your season got uh, – 69 got started later for you because you were rehabbing from an injury. Um, well, there wasn't that game or that period where you guys started to say, hey, you're good, but this is more than just us being competitive. We're, we're going to be in the mix at another level. There wasn't that one moment, you think, at that point throughout the season that you guys started to feel that? Well, we were still nine games behind the Cubs going into August, I mean, which is a big – big amount of games to catch up. And, and at some point, right, I would say the middle of August, we became unbeatable. And I think that was, you know, there were, there were games when we, we, we acquired Don Clendenin in June. That was a big move for us. He was a, a veteran with right-hand power. And, and that, was, that, was, that was huge for us. But I don't remember there, uh, there was a series or a game or something. I think we just, we just came on so strong. We started to believe in ourselves as we were – getting closer to the Cubs. Uh, it wasn't so much that they were losing so many games as that we were just unbeatable. We were beating everybody. And I really believe it was just this, this, this understanding from everybody on that team that we were a good team. And it, every time we went out there, we had good pitchers and we had to win these close games. And all of a sudden, everything clicked. And, and I think the genius of Gil Hodges was that he got everybody involved. He platooned in four positions and sometimes in five behind the plate with Jerry Grody and J.C. Morton. So he was able to get the most from everybody on that team, and I think that was his great, greatest asset. He was a, a manager who managed by feel. In other words, he wasn't a manager that, like today where printouts or sabermetrics. He was a guy who, who knew the game, a great ball player in his own right with the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and, and knew the game and got everybody involved. And I think at some moment in the middle of August when we were still nine games behind the Cubs, we just started to click, and, and everything fell into place. We got some breaks. There's no doubt about it. But we were able to beat every single team and win every series. And, 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 and when teams played us, they know they were in for a tough time. We had, uh, you know, great starters, and it's terrific defense. And we were able to scrounge for a run here and there and win games. And Cleon Jones hit 340 that year. I hit 300. Uh, Clendenin and Crane pulled it first, and Swoboda and right with me, and Ed Charles and Wayne Garrett and Boswell and Weiss at second. We were all getting key hits to help us win games, and I think that was really the beauty of that team. You mentioned all the contributions, and in the book, the After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 69 Mets, you mentioned the word brotherhood. I've talked to players, and, and players talk about chemistry as guys coming to work and knowing their role, accepting it, and going to work, getting the job done. And, and in baseball, it's not like the NBA. and One player doesn't just change the dynamic, but chemistry for you guys, uh, especially because you guys all had to sacrifice. Not everybody played every day. Only a few of the starting uh, nine uh, was getting five, 600 at bats. Uh, but that was a special chemistry. It sounds like the fact that you guys could get together all these years later, uh, share stories. I don't know if that's common in any club, regardless of time and era. Do you agree with that, that you guys had something a little bit different and that helped you something that's uh, hard to describe when it comes to synergy? I, I, I do, and it's a really interesting point that you bring up. I think the reason this team resonates so many years later is the fact that we were known. Or I don't want to take the blame for those early years because I wasn't there, but, but when you play for the Mets, you're associated with that the tag of being the lovable loser, so, so I accept it. But we were so bad, the team was so bad in those early years that if you didn't win two games or two out of three or win the whole series, it was a bad series for you. And and I think people remember how bad the team was and that to turn it around and win it all in that year was, was fantastic. And, and the second thing I think people would, uh, remember is that 
it was such an awful time in this country. You weren't born, so you don't really remember, but many people who are still around today remember the late 60s and early 70s in this country that the war in Vietnam was tearing this country apart. city of New York was going under uh, financially, socially, um, spiritually, whatever way you want to say, the city was really in disarray, as many cities were in this country. And we made people feel better about their lives for a brief period of time, and they have they have thanked us over the years for doing that. And people, kids who weren't even born know about that team from their parents and their grandparents because of what we did to help them get through those times. And I think, I think people just kind of have hooked on to us as somebody they could, they could see some light at the end of the tunnel and they feel like they can relate to us. Uh, and, and 50 years later, we're still, you know, shaking hands and people are thanking us and, and, and loving the fact that we really helped them get through some tough times. I, 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 always, I always say this to people, that the 6-9 Mets were not the greatest team to win a World Series. We certainly had pitching and defense and timely hitting, but I think we're one of the most iconic teams ever in Major League Baseball history because of what we did to help the city get through and help people get through some really difficult times. And I think that's resonated over the years, and it, it, uh, who knows, the 6-9 Mets will live on forever. It's just one of those teams that – People like to hang on to and, and, and talk about them, and, and, and it was important in their lives as it was important in our lives, and so I think people remember that. And it almost didn't happen for you. You had to work really hard to rehab. You were down in Tidewater. That's the affiliate back then for those listening that don't realize that wasn't Norfolk. It was Tidewater. It was the Tides for many, many years. Uh, you didn't come into the mix until May, so you had to work really hard to be part of this. Um, and then you had a really good following campaign in 1970. So I'm assuming that the work, because back pain in baseball, that's a tough, tough, tough situation. Your back basically makes your whole body feel miserable. You must have worked really hard, and, uh, and there's got to be a lot of satisfaction that you were able to put two really good campaigns together in the face of some adversity. Yeah, my, my life changed a full circle that year. I got hurt in spring training, and and missed all of spring training and was laid up and didn't know when I was going to be able to play. You know, back then, you didn't have the best rehab situations. Uh, you know, it was just a t- tough time for me. I started the season on a disabled list, and I missed all of, like I said, spring training. And so um, I had to go down for a rehab assignment to uh, Tidewater for 10 days, and it was one of the worst periods of my life. I, you know, you don't know if you're coming back. Uh, you can get buried down there and, and, and and kind of like lose it all. And I went down there and I remember the first game I had a grand slam home run. I was back in 10 days and, and um, it, it was, it was, you know, it was just the kind of thing that, that still not knowing, uh, you know, how, how well I was going to be the rest of the year, but in not knowing obviously that the team was going to go on and win a world series. So my life went really full circle that year. And, and, and I'm so thankful that I got a chance to come back and be part of that team. And, I'm still in New York because of it, and I've, I've reaped the benefits of being part of that team. I, I always get asked, don't you wish you were playing now and making the money? And I'm, my standard answer is, uh, of course, but the reality is I wouldn't trade it for that World Series ring in 69 and having played against the greatest players and the conglomerate of players in the history of the game, in my opinion. A couple of things before I let you go. The book is After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 69 Mets. I have Art Shamsky with me, and also Eric Sherman is uh, the co-author. Uh, going into the series in Baltimore, that team that expected to steamroll you, um, sometimes the old saying is, you know, you, you respect your opponent so much that you disrespect them in the sense where you don't give them too much credit. Uh, going into that series, there was no intimidation on your guys' part. You guys didn't think about 
you just played your game? Is that a fair uh, perception of mine looking out from uh, outside of this that uh, you didn't look at the Orioles as, oh, my God, it's Baltimore. How are we going to do this thing? Well, I knew they had a terrific team. I played with Frank Robinson at Cincinnati, and obviously he was a great player, and they had a lineup that was, uh, you know, by far uh, on paper looked like the best in baseball. But we had Seaver, Kuzman, Gentry, and all our young pitchers and, and the veteran pitchers on our staff. And, and we knew we could be – and at that point, you have to remember, we're playing such great baseball. We had rolled over the Atlanta Braves in three games in the playoffs. So we, we were playing as good as anybody. They won 109 games during the regular season. We won 100. So it really wasn't that much difference. Um, uh, you know, the lineup was, was stronger. People would look at the paperwork of that and they would say, oh, yeah, they got a much better team. But the reality of it is we had – terrific young pitching and great defense. And, and, and um, you know, I made the last out of the only game we lost, the first game. It's a little bit of trivia there. And, and I don't think anybody was down when we lost that first game. We were in Baltimore. We had Kuzman pitching the next day, and we were very confident. Jerry pitched a, had a no-hitter for six innings, pitched a great game. Ron Taylor saved the game, and, and we come back to New York one and one I don't know if anybody thought we were going to win three in a row, but we were at least even with them, and, and, and the rest is history. We we swept them in three games at Chase Stadium, and and, and um, Kuzma pitched the last game and pitched another really good game. We weren't intimidated. We didn't lose confidence after we lost the first game. Uh, everybody was, was still up and feeling pretty good, and basically it was because we had Jerry pitching the next day. And, and so, so um, I, I don't think we were intimidated at all by – by uh, the Orioles, so we 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 felt we could compete with anybody, and this is after after we had, you know, from the middle of August on, we were like I said, almost unbeatable. So we were still on a roll, and I just think we we they might have taken us too lightly. Who knows? But we also got some breaks. I can't take away the fact that we got some breaks, and and I think we capitalized. And Tommy Agee made great catches. Uh, Ron Svoboda in right field made the unbelievable catch in right field, and. Uh, good defensive plays at third base with Ed Charles, and it was just it was our time. And Baltimore um, to this day wishes they would have won because they won it all the next year, and they would have been known as one of the great teams of the era. But we uh, we beat them, and and um, you know rightfully so we should have we should have won because we were we were we were an outstanding team. And that leads me to my last question because repeating is hard, and after an historic season where, like you said, so much went right. You had 1970 and then 71, and, and you had a great 1970, and then you moved on uh, after that. Um, was living up to expectations difficult for you guys? Now, it was a competitive league. You had the Pirates in your division and the Cardinals and obviously Atlanta and, and, the, and the West Coast teams in the West. It was a very uh, good time uh, with, with competitive teams in the National League. And, of course, then if you had even made it out of there, you have the Orioles waiting for you again that will tr- probably chomping at the bit. Um, was it hard to live up to those expectations? What was it different in 70 and maybe 71 as it went there? Was there a different feel? Did things change? Describe a little bit before I let you go the uh, the difference post-69 for you guys. Well, we couldn't sneak up on anybody, that's for sure. They knew we were a good team, and and, uh, and you hit it right on the nose. It, uh, it, 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 National League was very competitive, and that National League East was a, a tough division, and you had some really great teams. And, and you know, some guys just did not have the same kind of years as the year before, but but that's baseball. But but uh, we were still competitive, and 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 I just think we just uh, you know people didn't didn't take us for granted anymore. They we were the world champion, New York Mets, and so you had to be on your best uh, in your best playing position to be, beat us. And 
and uh, and we just we just you know we just didn't have the same kind of year, but but uh, we were still a good team. And I do believe if Gil Hodges would have lived longer, the Mets would have won more more World Series. He was that that uh, terrific a manager. But uh, basically, we just um, we 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 got some breaks that year in '70, but we weren't we weren't as good as we were the year before. And the National League East was very very difficult. So I think that's really what happened. But we were not the lovable losers anymore. People did not take us for granted anymore. So it was it was very difficult. Art, it's been a pleasure. The book is After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets. And uh, for me, it's, it's a different look uh, that has been written before for someone who wasn't around. And I'm sure the, the fans who are coming up to you uh, that were alive during that time are loving it. So be well. I'm sure we'll see you at the ballpark. And again, I thank you so much for doing this. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. That's Art Shamsky. Check it out, the book, After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1960, oh, it's actually the 69 Mets, but The Lasting Brotherhood of the 69 Mets, Art Shamsky, Eric Sherman. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. All right, final thoughts. Hope you enjoyed a couple of really good back-to-back segments. One with Rich Catino had some interesting things to say. And then Art Shamsky. And we'll be doing a lot of 69 Mets this year as the Mets are celebrating the 50th anniversary. And Art was the first of many segments. Actually, the night of opening day, the home opener, I shouldn't say opening day, the home opener on Thursday, Wayne Coffey, author of a book, they said it couldn't be done, the 69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding season in baseball history will be joining me. If you if you remember, Wayne also wrote uh, the R.A. Dickey book. Uh, he co-authored with R.A. Dickey. He's written a book with Marian, uh, about Marion Rivera, the 1980 USA hockey team. So uh, Wayne will give you a different perspective where Art was giving you the player perspective and his memories along with some of his former teammates. Uh, I think Wayne being able to dive into the whole season, the National League, the Mets, how the Mets were born, the city and the time, the political climate in the in the nation at that time, I think it gives you a, a different type of of story about that season. And I think what I feel, what I really think about the 69 season is that you have all these different segments of Mets fans. And I saw a Twitter conversation about this and it's maybe something interesting to kill some time at some point as we get into the, to the baseball season. But you have the, the early fans that were there that grew up in the 1969 season. Then you have the fans who came on maybe in the late 70s and fell in love with the team at a not-so-great time, but then got into the 80s and, and what have you with that team. Then you have the 90s Mets fans that are the Piazza, you know, Subway Series fans. And then you have the, the iteration now, the iteration now that's the, the seven-line group, I call it. 
So I think whatever generation you're from, whether you lived it or after it, you could probably appreciate and learn and enjoy maybe a period of Mets history that gets overlooked because it's been so much about 86 over the last 30 years. And this team was born out of the 62 Mets in the 60s and 69. That's really the bedrock, not 86. 86 was uh, jumping into a new era, maybe going, getting away from the lovable losers and the miracle and jumping into an era of what was supposed to be a dynasty. And, and actually it was a very successful era other than the fact that, you know, you didn't win more than one championship, but that's hard. Winning championships is hard. So a lot of 69 stuff we'll talk about. Enjoyed Rich. Enjoyed Art Shamsky. Check out Art's book, uh, After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 69 Mets. Our friend Eric Sherman, who also uh, co-authored Davy Johnson's book, and we talked to Eric last year as part of that. So a lot of good stuff uh, about the 69 Mets. And, of course, our friend Rich Catino is coming out with a book in June as well, which will be just in time for the 69 celebration. So uh, tons of stuff to talk about. Tons of books coming out about baseball. There's the David Cohn book. Ron Darling just came out with a book, 108 Stitches. I know there's a book uh, that I'm, uh, about the 85 season. Uh, there's a book about the 99-2000 season. Like really, as we get into the – Spring here, if you're a baseball fan, there are so many books, and we're going to be highlighting a lot of this stuff as part of, I figured, you know, we'll do a weekly podcast, talk about the team, and then maybe we'll dive into some of these books and works and look back, and, and I think that's what makes it fun talking baseball. You can do like, you talk about the current team, and then you could dive back into remembering some good times and, and really enjoy the season, because it's such a long season, and it's not like the NFL, of course, and even the NBA, where it's so intense Every night, um, you need to have kind of that back and forth where you dive into the current team. You di- you know you know there are a big series, and right now is opening day, so everything is fresh. It's like cracking off the fresh cellophane here. So maybe you're overanalyzing in some cases, but then you take those steps back during the lulls in the season, and maybe dive into some of the different things that are going on, the works. And there's going to be so many of those, and I'm hoping to highlight each and every one of them, and maybe get some some cool guests on as well throughout that time. So anyway, I want to thank Rich Catino. You can check him out on Twitter at Catino9, uh, 9870 ESPN. Of course, I want to thank Art Shamsky. Check out the book, After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets. Of course, I want to thank you, the fans, for checking in and listening. I want to thank my good friends over at MetsmorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever podcasting service you desire. Please leave me a review on iTunes. It would be greatly appreciated. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Tune in later this week for our 69 Look Back with Wayne Coffey, author of the book. They said it couldn't be done. See you later, everybody.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 